Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. I was up here a few weeks ago, and I talked about the book of Romans. I, I brought up this idea of a higher calling. And so I wanted to come back to it, as I'll have an opportunity to be up here a couple more times in the next couple of weeks. And so I thought, I only did two verses last time that I was up here. I should probably finish off and do more than just a couple of verses. And so I wanted to come back and finish off chapter 12. But before we get there... On the, on the, I'll say the gentle prodding of a congregant, I was encouraged with Paul Gaughan to take advantage of my boss's absence and fit in as many American jokes as I possibly could. And while I have no desire to take advantage of my boss's absence, you all heard me, no desire to do that, there, there was one story that I thought might be fitting for today's message, okay? Just, just one. This comes from 1995, and it is a conversation that occurs between a U.S. naval ship and Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland in October of 1995. It goes, it goes like this. There's an American ship, and it is conveying a message to the Canadians. It's American captain says, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Canadians respond, well, we recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Americans respond, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Canadians respond again, no, I say again, you divert your course. Americans, this is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln the second largest ship in the Atlantic fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, multiple support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. That's one five degrees north. Or countermeasures will be taken to ensure the safety of this ship. Canadians respond. This is a lighthouse. Do as you wish. Okay, that's my one American joke. Well, Paul's gone. Now, that's not a true story. It's an anecdote that has been passed down for about 100 years is the first inclination of that joke. So what that tells me is we Canadians have been enjoying making fun of our southern neighbors for about as long as that, right? But as I was reflecting on this story that I have heard shared before, it struck me how often do we set ourselves on a course fully convinced of our destination, but yet lack the humility to simply look up and see where it is that we've led ourselves. As Canadians, we certainly do like to poke fun at our southern neighbors, but as Christians, I think we share a lot in common in the same struggles that they have, and that we struggle in our, humi our humility to recognize our own failings. And so this morning, I wanted to continue exploring the Apostle Paul's instructions that he wrote to the church in Romans. And if you weren't here a few weeks ago, as a quick recap, 
Romans 1 to 11, it's all focused on doctrine. Paul is focused on the core aspects of what we refer to as the gospel. But when Paul gets around to chapter 12, he transitions to this section of five chapters on practical instruction. And he provides instructions on what it means to be a living sacrifice, to show humility and service, and love and action, which is what we're going to focus on today. The 11 chapters of doctrine highlight all that we have been invited to, and chapters 12 through 16 are Paul's attempts at giving us a roadmap and the ability to look up and take evaluation of where we are. And again, while we only looked at two key verses the last time we explored Roman this morning, we're going to finish off. So we're going to go through verses 3 through 21. And so if you have your Bible in front of you, you're welcome to open to it. The words will also be on the screen behind me, but please follow along as I read. Paul says this, for the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and many members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith. If service in serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer and contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep Live in harmony with one another, and do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what, or give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What an incredible piece of scripture. I think Paul is really trying to nail the, 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 hammer the nail through in this letter. He's trying to get his audience to recognize he repeats himself multiple times. It's interesting to me that the one thing, if we look back to those first two verses that I covered a few weeks ago, Paul talks about the renewing of our mind 
And the first thing that he discusses as soon as that piece is concluded is humility. If we are to be renewed in our mind by a relationship with God, there will be evidence of that relationship. Now, with the recent release of a new installment in the Indiana Jones movie series, which I will admit to you, I'm a big movie buff. So Paul and I share our love of movies, and I am a big Indiana Jones fan because I remember as a kid, my dad loved those movies because he went to them when they first came out. And so when I was old enough, or just about old enough to watch those movies, I remember my dad and I would go out on Friday night, we'd take the long drive to Blockbuster Video Rental, and we would have to rent all three movies. And in doing so, you had to make sure we had time to watch all three movies that weekend, otherwise you'd get those dreaded late fees. No one wanted those Blockbuster late fees. And so I remember vividly as a child watching these movies. Now, I, I do just ignore uh, The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. That movie was never made. It's not an Indiana Jones movie. It doesn't have Harrison Ford in it. So we're just going to ignore that one. But the original three were incredible movies. And two of the three, which I'm going to argue are some of the best movies ever made, they have this thing in common. They, they, they're films that endeavor to find lost items from the Judeo-Christian history, right? First, the Ark of the Covenant, and then the Holy Grail, the cup that Jesus drank out of at the Last Supper. And each item is being sought after by Indiana Jones, but also the villains of the films, in both cases, the Nazis. And while neither film would pass an intro to theology course in either the Jewish or Christian faith, there is at least one portion of the Last Crusade I think worth considering in light of Paul's instructions. If we think about the Last Crusade uh, and the Holy Grail, the quest to find it, we, we have a movie with one of the wonderful actors of our generation, Sean Connery, and as he's laying on the ground of this temple, dying from a bullet wound, in need of healing from the waters of the grail to survive, Indiana Jones is tested. He faces three tests, and the first test is called the breath of God, and it's why I mention the films today. See, Indy hasn't figured out the puzzle yet. But as he approaches with what could be his last steps, he whispers over and over and over again the one clue. Do you guys remember that part of the movie? Only the penitent man shall pass. To blow through the chamber, India only has a few moments to pass the test. He's committed to his course, but he doesn't know the answer. And at the very moment he needs to figure it out, right, cue the high drama, he gets it. The penitent man is humble before God. The penitent man. The penitent man is humble. The penitent man is humble. And then he kneels, and as he kneels, two massive circular saws emerge from the wall, just missing his head and his famous fedora. And as I said earlier, the theology probably isn't going to pass the muster in any seminary, but it does get one thing right. The journey of faith, even for the hero, begins with humility and humbling ourselves before God. There's another part of that movie, the third and final test, where he makes it, before he makes it to the grail, and it's called The Leap of Faith. 
I'm sure some of you remember that portion of the movie, this infamous scene where Indy can see no path forward, but he takes a step out into the abyss only to be caught by a bridge that could not be seen. Now, if you guys don't like movie spoilers, I'm going to apologize in advance, but I'm going to ruin something for you, okay? This beautiful scene wasn't real. And when I first saw that picture and I recognized how the cinematographers were able to capture that unique perspective, it, it was striking. We are all called to take a leap of faith, but those leaps often appear far more dangerous than they actually are. We're always convinced that there's a lot more danger involved in trusting God than there actually is. And when I first saw this this picture, what struck me was this to me is how I feel when I often take a leap of faith. That I am in a very small scale and there is a very big God watching out for me, holding me, guiding me, there to catch me if I fall. And it struck me. So what do we take from Indiana Jones? Better yet, what do we take from the challenge that the Apostle Paul set in Romans 12. Well, again, remember those first two verses in in the chapter 12, the ones we covered a few weeks ago. This is the beauty of Scripture. When we really take time to read it, listen to it, watch where it instructs us to go, we find a roadmap to growing closer to our Creator. See, Paul's nonconformity, his renewing of the mind, it should look like what we just read about in Romans 3 through 21. Immediately after he finishes with renewing of your mind, he brings up humility. And in Christ's age, in the Roman world, many philosophers urged a sound view of oneself based on one's role in the larger universe. But the focus was on my role in the universe and what I can take out of it. And what Paul is urging is actually instructing those to consider their roles in Christ's body as the universe not just themselves. Because humility in the ancient world was seen as a weakness. You did not humble yourself before someone. That was to lower yourself in stature. And yet Paul's instructing them to do just that. And what strikes me about that is in the age we live in, an age that is exemplified by unapologetic individualism, we are continually encouraged to think about how things make us feel. Our emotions are what matter. Our desires are what matter. Our wants and needs, that's what matters. And at the end of the day, this is much like what was taught in the ancient world in the time of Christ, that our pursuits trumped anything else. And what this brings up is that an individualistic culture is a community that prioritizes the individual over the collective group. Individualistic cultures emphasize attributes like uniqueness or individuality, personal goals, independence, self-reliance, self-sufficiency, and privacy. And we are raised in a Western culture, like many Western cultures, that tend to value individualistic society growth. But for a second, I want to suggest that this individualism is not what God would have for us. 
I think as Paul highlights in focusing on the body and bringing our focus to what God would have for us, that while we are indeed made unique in the sight of God, we are built for community and a purpose larger than our own goals. And there is a downside to living an individualistic life. The first is a decrease in unity. When communities include a series of self-focused individuals, it can sharply affect the unity and cohesiveness of that group. See, each individual might tend toward emphasizing their personal differences and their personal goals. They're worried about themselves before they worry about their brother or their sister or their friend. And that results in overall disharmony because they're not working together. The second thing is is it creates lower empathy. See, people in individualistic cultures are by nature more self-interested. They're self-centered which means they tend to feel less empathy and sympathy for others in the community and are less likely to help support them in their goals. Why? Again, they're worried about me. They're worried about how do I achieve what I want, and if that means I ignore the person beside me struggling to get further towards my goal, then that's a part of the cost of life. The third con, the third impact of an individualistic society is a reduced sense of support. Again, people in individualistic communities might feel more isolated and alone with the support of only themselves and their immediate family. These citizens lack the deep and complex web of support and connectedness that can be present in more collective communities. I don't think... I don't think that's what Paul is encouraging us to consider. He's encouraging us to consider a more collective approach to the way that we live our life, to review this idea that decrease in unity, lower empathy, and the reduced sense of support has an impact on the way that we live our lives. And if you think about the world that we live in today, we experience all of these things. Our world today probably has never had less unity in it. I certainly don't think our society is categorized as empathetic. And we hear continually about how there's a reduced sense of support for people in our world. See, this would seem to be a point of emphasis for Paul as as we continue through the letters we see in verses 4 and 5 as Paul refers to many members forming one body. This is what he's trying to get across to the church in Rome, an affluent church. The church in Rome likely had more middle-class members than any other church in the developing world at that time, and he's encouraging them to set aside their own personal agendas to work together as a body, as one collective group. It's a unique feature that actually accompanies Paul's writings throughout Scripture and unifies his teaching on various spiritual gifts, emphasizing the diversity and variety of those gifts. We see it in Ephesians 4. We see it in 1 Corinthians 12. In these passages, Paul regularly portrays the church as a body with many members serving many different functions. And while the church shares a common mindset and purpose— Paul is instructing its members to use their diverse gifts to serve this unified goal in love. Those are two key themes repeated throughout Paul's teachings. Unified community and doing it in love. 
See, Paul is highlighting that, that an aspect of renewal, an aspect of renewing our minds of nonconformity is actually living in unity with one another. Now think about that for a second. Our society teaches individualism above all. So to avoid conforming and to live biblically, we are instructed to show the world how to live in harmony with one another in a collective fashion. The church is that collective fashion. The church is not only an institution, but it is a movement towards Christ. That is the intention of the church, a place for believers to grow towards Christ together. And our our individuality, our uniqueness as created by God is not done to our benefit, but it is done to his glory, for his glory. Our gifting, our passions, our qualities is all intended to help support the kingdom, not our small piece of the universe. It requires us to reckon with the individualistic messaging found in our culture and to place God's will his perfect and pleasing will that that Paul talks about above our own will. And then we get to verse 9. We're only at verse 9. But at verse 9 through 21, it focuses on the attributes that Paul says highlight someone's faith in Christ. That is love in action. Their participation in the kingdom, someone's participation should be evident through their love in action. So what does that look like? Well, it must be sincere. And Paul starts there. But do you understand the significance of why Paul starts with sincere love? When we love, when we love others, as we are instructed to do repeatedly throughout Scripture, what are we actually accomplishing? We are attempting to show God to the world. We're attempting to show his will, his desire for relationship, his blessings, his promises. All that encompasses God's love is to be shown through us, God's people, so that others can come to know the Son through the Father or the Father through the Son, so the Holy Spirit can enter into their lives and bring transformation to them. And if it is not sincere we are presenting a love that is not authentic to who God is. The second thing, we must cling to good and avoid what is evil. It must be devoted to one another. We are to endure our faith with one another in community. And this is where the unity components of Paul's theology comes into practice. And this, the, the Greek word for devotion in this portion of scripture, the word here represents Christians as bound by a family tie. It is intended to define more specifically the character of brotherly love, which follows so that the exhortation could be read as, love the brethren in the faith as though they were brethren in blood. It's what has produced the brethren movement and brethren denomination since its inception, the idea that community goes beyond our our earthly family ties, but we are family in Christ, and we are to show that brotherly love to one another. We are never to lacking in zeal, but have evidence of spiritual fervor by serving the Lord. Now, this is an interesting one. 
because fervor in our English language tends to lead us astray from what I think the original intention of this, this, this piece of scripture is talking about. In our English language, it denotes intensity or passion. But fervent, which is formed from the Latin fervio, means to boil or ferment. And it is an exact translation of that word where we derive our meaning today. It means to seethe or bubble. And it is therefore used figuratively of mental states and emotions. What Paul is highlighting for the church in Rome is that there should always be something percolating or bubbling under the surface. Our faith should never be inert, but it should be actively working itself through. Then we get to a few other instructions. We are to be joyful in hope. Are we showing hope to the world? Are we patient in our affliction? Are we quick to respond? Are we faithful in prayer? Or do we cast that aside as a lower priority? Do we share with those in need by practicing hospitality? Or do we concern ourselves with making sure that we have enough left for ourselves? Then he gets to this one. Bless those who persecute us. But he doesn't stop there. He says to bless without curse. See, an interesting practice sprang up in the early church, and that is when young Christians were being persecuted, they followed many cultural ties in which outwardly they would bless someone and tell them, I'm praying for you, as we, I think, often do in the church today. And then behind closed doors, they would curse those individuals. Bless those who persecute. An even more fascinating part of this piece of scripture is the very earliest translations of the Bible don't include you in that verse. So what it does is it becomes a more general idea to bless those who persecute, period. Even those who you're not offended by, even those that don't persecute you, you're still supposed to bless those individuals, Think about the significance of that statement. We are to bless those who simply persecute regardless of their impact on us. So how do we bless those who persecute? We can pray for them. We can show them grace. We can show them love. We can provide forgiveness for their actions because they are living a life where they don't understand this. They're living a life where they don't have Christ and so they're not living by the same rules our response to persecution will show a lot of how sincere our love truly is. Then Paul instructs us to rejoice with others, but also to mourn with others. I don't know of a way to do that in an individual manner. Rejoicing with others and mourning with others is a communal activity that I think in the church we do a fairly good job of. As many of you have experienced, if you ever go to a uh, faith-based memorial service, a Christian funeral, a celebration of life service, there is both rejoicing and mourning that happens concurrently. And one of the things I often struggle with as a pastor is when I go to a memorial service for someone who's not a believer, and there's no rejoicing, there's no hope, there's something lacking Then Paul instructs us to live in harmony with one another, to show humility and avoid pride, and then associate ourselves with even the lowliest parts of society. 
Humility is required to prevent hypocrisy because we are not perfect and we can lead ourselves down roads where we convince ourselves that we've arrived at the end of our destination when we are but children in our faith. One of the most profound moments that I've ever had as a pastor is sitting down with a lifelong mentor of mine who to this day still preaches and teaches and I remember sitting down with him and I made a comment and a remark that I wish I could achieve what he has achieved. And he looked at me and without breaking his concentration, he simply said, Brennan, I have not arrived at anything. I am still learning. I am still young. I am but a child to God. Even in his 70s, he does not see himself as higher than any other believer. And it was very challenging to me because I struggle with that sometimes. Then Paul instructs us to avoid taking revenge, but being at peace with everyone so far as it depends on you. Remove the other person's actions. How can we be at peace with those around us? Well, it requires humility, patience, wisdom. That is love in action. I think that is what Christ was referring to when he mentions turning the other cheek. Are there limitations to that? Absolutely. I'm no proponent of abuse, and there's going to be instances where we need to remove ourselves from unhealthy situations, but we don't have to engage in conflict with others. We don't have to seek it out, and we can choose to let a lot more go than we do. We can let go of our hate, our anger, our frustrations, and choose to wish the best for those that even wish us ill. What Paul is referencing and what he eventually comes to at the end of this section is the idea that we are to overcome evil with good. The church has struggled at times attempting to overcome evil with knowledge, the knowledge that we're right and they're wrong. And Paul is writing again to a church that has no recognition. It's not an organized faith yet. It's an underground movement of believers who are experiencing persecution, mockery, and are experienced um, by, by those that follow Christ. The, the church in Rome is a young movement. Our church today, Christianity as a whole, is losing some recognition. It's losing our, its cultural status. There's concerns that it's losing its charitable status. It's suffering from increased mockery. And Christians are experiencing a persecution again as culture in North America turns away from its historical Protestant roots. The thing that I have often wrestled with the last number of years is that really such a terrible thing? Or will it wake us up to living the life that Christ has called us to? See, this is love in action. All of those things, that is love in action. I certainly don't do all of those things. I am still learning how to accomplish half of what's up on that list. It's not an easy assignment. It's intended to be a lifelong commitment that we are continually striving towards. But Paul's not finished. And this is key for us in the church today because after finishing his discourse on love in action, he immediately transitions into an even more controversial aspect of scripture for those of us in the world today, especially in North America. Because as soon as he finishes talking about love in action, you can see it in your Bibles in front of you, chapter 13 talks about submitting to governing authorities. 
which for the sake of time today, we're not going to delve into. But after encouraging the Christians in Rome to avoid open rebellion and to pay their taxes, Paul comes back to love. He's tying these two things together, love and action, right? Not seeking revenge, respecting authority. Paul comes back to love. And in Romans 13.10, he says this, love fulfills the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. What he's referencing is Mark 12, 30 to 31, when, when he says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your strength, your soul, your mind. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other greater commandment than these. What Paul is attempting to get through to the church in Rome is that love is the fulfillment of what was always intended. Paul's intention is found in encouraging a fledgling church to think outside of their normal cultural customs, thinking outside of their normal ways that they approached other Christians and non-believers alike. He was telling them point blank, repeatedly, your love in action should be evident, it should be felt, and it should produce something. At the same time, Paul was writing to a group of people attempting to bring them away from the legalism of the law and highlight that love and action was what the law was always intended to produce. It's what Christ, it's what Christ refers to repeatedly in our, in our scriptures. Love in action should produce a result. For Paul, there was no greater focus than that. A few things that I want to encourage you to think about today. A few applications. First, consider sacrificing an individualistic mindset for a collective one. Now, for those of us that are a part of a community of faith, we often think that we have a collective mindset but I often wonder how much we struggle reconciling the things that we want versus the things that are better for the community. Are we willing to submit some of our individual freedoms for the benefit of God's kingdom? Two, evaluate the sincerity of your love. That's a hard one. It is a difficult thing to take a look in the mirror and truly take an unbiased look at the way that we live our lives. To ask ourselves, how much of what we do is for self-seeking purposes? Are we communicating the kind of love that God would ask of us? The kind of love that will convey to the world around us what God wants them to see, not what we want them to see. Number three, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. Oh, that's a hard one. Do you need to forgive someone today? Do you need to seek someone else's forgiveness? Do you need to let something go? What can you do with family, with friends, with your coworkers to live in peace? Because it's an instruction in Scripture that we cannot ignore. 
as the worship team comes up and as we prepare to close with another song, which I think is just a beautiful resemblance of what we've been talking about today. I want you to be thinking about the fact that Paul is encouraging us to renew our mind. All of Romans 12 through 16 are a joint portion of scripture intended to encourage the reader to move in a direction that brings them closer to Christ. We cannot overcome any evil without God. And that requires us to renew our minds. It's not your wisdom, it's not your talents, it's not your passion that will win out at the end of the day, but it is our ability to show humility in seeking God's assistance to overcome what must and accept that which cannot. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I just I come before you this morning and I thank you for the way in which you are helping your church grow. God, I thank you for the ways in which you are bringing people to your church, the ways in which you are challenging our faith and helping us exhibit a love that will transform the world. God, I pray that as you continually bring people to Bethany, God, I pray that you continue to grow our sense of community, our sense of collective, that we are all attempting to accomplish one goal, your goal. And Lord, as we leave here today, God, allow our love to be one in action. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.